to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Uh, welcome. Uh, good to be here with you this morning. Uh, been a few weeks since I have been in the pulpit. We're out of town one week, and uh, Tyler Speck from uh, City on Hill, Brookline, came and preached. And then last week, Matt Harris preached for us uh, before his, his last sermon before he and Sue temporarily moved to London. They don't move to London, they temporarily moved to London uh, for eight months. We, I keep saying temporarily, so we can make sure that that is clear. Um, they're going there for eight months for a uh, part of Sue's work with Northeastern. Uh, last, next Sunday will be their last Sunday, so be sure to be here. We're going to send them off well and pray for them as they go. We, we look at this as, a, as an opportunity. Uh, as, as much as we will miss them, we pray how, to see how God will use them in London over the next eight months. And they're going to be back a few times. They're going to be visiting. They're going to be around for the holidays, so we will miss them, but they will uh, be back. Also, big thank you to Haven this morning for playing keys. It sounded incredible. It's her first time playing in the band, so thank you. Uh, incredible job. Uh, it was beautiful time of worship this morning, so glad we could all be a part of that. Um, a couple things before we get into the text today. Again, I mentioned that uh, card at the beginning of the service. If you haven't had a chance to fill that out, that blue card, uh, drop that in the box in the back, and we'll follow up with you. Again, we'll send a $5 gift card to Thurcliffe Bakery, as well as make a $5 donation to a charity of your choice. Uh, also, our values as a church, the gospel, community, and mission. The gospel means good news, that we were once separated from God because of our sin, uh, but God made a way for us, that God gave his own son for us to die in our place, to pay the penalty we deserve in order to, to restore us to relationship with God, that we'd be brought into God's family. And so if you've not entered into that relationship, we'd love to talk with you about how to do so. Just come find me right after the service, right over here to my left, your right. Uh, secondly, community. God created us for relationships. And so we uh, have relationships as the church with people from every background, walk of life, all coming together, and we really see this fleshed out for us in community groups. Community groups meet uh, at various parts during the week to encourage one another, to le- uh, learn more about Jesus, and then also to help love our neighbors as Christ has loved us. And so our community groups are going on a break uh, starting this week, and we'll be on a break for a few weeks till about the middle of September. Uh, but don't forget, we are starting back up in the middle of September. We're going to be having a community group sign up the, the, uh, September 11th and September 18th. So if you are, are not in a group yet, this is a great time to get plugged into one. And if you're, in, if you're in a group, this is a good time to re-up. We'll have a few more options this fall as well. And so hopefully we're going to have some more around four-ish groups, we're hoping, uh, this fall. So lots of options and opportunities uh, for you to check out. Uh, and then mission. Mission is the idea that God has called us to join him in making all things new. So we share the hope of Jesus, what he's done for us. We share the gospel. We also demonstrate the gospel through loving our neighbor in word and deed. A couple of announcements uh, as well as, uh, on top of a uh, community group breaks. Um, we have uh, the fall is rapidly approaching. And so I'm really excited about the fall coming up. And uh, one of the, my favorite rhythms of the fall is our network retreat. As a church, we go away with our other City and Hill congregations in uh, Brookline, Somerville, Brighton. It's kind of like a big family reunion. We go away to New Hampshire uh, for a weekend in October. And so signups have already opened up. So if you are interested in coming on that, go to our event page, coahforesthills.org slash events. Go ahead and sign up. The early bird rate is good through September 10th. So be sure to sign up 
as quickly as you possibly can. It's going to be a great time as we do that. Uh, and then a couple of things. There's kind of internal things. Um, if, if you, we're making the transition to Church Center. And so uh, we've been on Slack and we're moving to Church Center uh, full time. And so Slack is going to be dead as a doornail next Saturday, kind of like MySpace. If you're on MySpace, it's gone. You should have made the transition to Facebook and now Instagram or whatever else. I had the most killer MySpace playlist, by the way, for those of you old enough to remember that. Um, but we are transitioning to Church Center. And so there should be some slides up here on how to make that transition. Um, you can download the app. Uh, through uh, the Apple App Store. You can download it through um, the Google Play Store. And then we also have a, um, a QR code that should pop up um, for, for an actual document on how we're making that transition. And if it doesn't make it up there, we have a placard in the back at our Connect table that you can scan all of those things for. And then lastly, our church survey. We'd love to hear um, from you about how we can grow and become better as a church. And so this is our last week for that survey. So if you've not filled that out, please do so. Um, you can go to coaforesthills.org slash survey or grab a physical copy in the back and you can give that to me. Those answers are not, are, are, um, no one else is going to know those answers but our elders, so be sure to uh, fill that out if, um, if you'd uh, like to do so. Now, this morning as we dive in, I don't know about you, but I'm a big soundtrack person. I love listening to any type of music. Uh, we went on a, a trip to Montreal a couple weeks ago and I have my own personal soundtrack. I listen to music the entire time. I don't want to talk to anybody because I'm in the middle of that really big Foo Fighters breakdown and I got to go for it. And so I love music, but I love, I love soundtracks too, because if you've ever watched a movie, you can imagine the movie as you're listening to the soundtrack. And so I'm, so if you listen to a soundtrack, let's say like Hamilton, you're like, oh, I remember the stage play and remember how this all goes on. But one of my favorites is Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump is a killer top 10 of all time movie soundtrack. And because you can just see the story unfolding. And there's this part in the, in the movie, Forrest Gump, that I love um, where, where Forrest is self-narrating and he's talking about how for no particular reason, he just began to run. And so you, if you watch the movie, Forrest leaves his little house in Greenbow, Alabama, which is not a real town in Alabama. I can tell you that. Someone from Alabama, it's not a real town. Um, he leaves his house, runs out the front door, and just runs across America multiple times. And by the end, he has this giant grizzly beard. And, and toward the end of his run, he's running across a bridge, and there are all these reporters running with him, and they're asking, they're saying, Forrest, are you running for world peace? Are you running for women's rights? Are you running for this? Are you running for that? And he said, I just felt like running. And that's how we imagine life sometimes. We imagine that we're just kind of running. We're kind of moving forward. We're moving from one place to the next, from one job to the next, from one neighborhood to the next, and we kind of feel aimless. We kind of feel like we don't really know why we're running. It's like the writer Jack Kerouac said that life is the road. We imagine that life itself is the journey and that we're really not moving toward anything of great importance. But if you remember the movie, if you remember Forrest running, what happened immediately before Forrest began to run? His mother died. And then Jenny, his long, lifelong love, denies his marriage proposal Forrest had a reason for running. Forrest had to deal with his pain and his suffering and his mourning somehow. And the only way he knew how to do it was to run. If you're running, you're running from something or towards something. And everything we do is driven by what we want most. If I'm being chased by a bear, I'm running away from it. What I want most at that moment is not to die. If I'm running toward a finish line, what I want more than anything else is to finish the race, but no matter what you're doing, no matter whether how you're running, you're running being driven by what you want most. 
Boris did this to deal with his pain, but sometimes we run after things not even knowing that we're doing it. And so if what we want more than anything else is safety, sometimes we will run from intimacy with other people because we're fearful, because we believe that safety is what's most important. We'll run towards pleasure and we'll do things we know that are bad for us. We'll do things we know that are wrong because ultimately we want pleasure more than anything else. And you can apply this to affection or comfort. Whatever it is that you want more than anything, each of us are driven by what we want most. And sometimes we fail to do the right thing simply because we're driven by a wrong motive. Uh, on our trip to Montreal a couple weeks ago, I got a speeding ticket. We're driving along and I, I have this thing, I want to beat the GPS. Like whatever time it gives me, I'm like, I can shave off 15 minutes. Like I, I want to I beat the GPS. And so I, I'm speeding and I end up getting a ticket. What I wanted in that moment was to get to my destination, destination way more than I did want to obey the traffic laws. Some of you who are, are, are texters while you drive, you know who you are. I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but you know who you are. You know it's wrong. You know that there's a penalty. You know that there's a fine for that, but you just itch to be tethered to something. You just need to know all the information, or maybe it's like a, it's a numbing mechanism for you. We, want, we do these things based on what we want most, and I think this is why at times we struggle to grow spiritually, is that we haven't identified what we want most. And so we go through the motions of spiritual growth, but yet we haven't addressed our hearts. We haven't addressed what we want most because why is it so hard to stop sinning? Why do we struggle to spend time with God? Why is even church a struggle sometimes? Why do we just lack the desire to serve? And sometimes those things are hard, but the Bible says all of those things will lead us to life in God, but we don't do them because deep down in our hearts, there's a competition for what our heart wants most. And the Bible tells us that we, you and I were made for God, and because we were made for God, he's the place where we find real satisfaction. He's the place where we are truly at home, but we tend to look for home and for satisfaction elsewhere. And what the gospel seeks to do is restore that joy, restore our love for Jesus in such a way that it refocuses our hearts to the one place where true satisfaction can be found. And this is what Paul is getting at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's describing the purpose or the reason that you and I run, and we have to keep our eyes focused on that reason, keep our eyes focused on the why of why we run. And when we get it, when we truly understand what God has done for us through his son Jesus it becomes what we want more than anything else. And we're willing to give anything away to get it. So let's look at what it takes to run with purpose. Firstly, this morning, you have to know why you are running. You have to know why you're running. The context of this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is telling the Corinthian church that he goes to great lengths so that other people can hear the gospel. He goes to great lengths to preach the gospel to them. And so Paul is saying, I don't just preach the gospel so that I can be a nice person. I don't just preach the gospel because I have this inner sense of odd or this, odd or this inner sense of should, or I feel like I have to do this so that God will love me. He does this being driven by something. And if you flip back just a little bit to verse 18, he says, what then is my reward? Paul is doing this. He's preaching the gospel. He's sacrificing everything for the sake of people knowing Jesus because of a reward that lies ahead of him. 
Now, this sounds kind of selfish, doesn't it? We imagine someone doing something for kind of these altruistic reasons. We imagine them doing it from a pure heart, and they just love people, and they want to they do it because it's just the right thing to do. But none of us do anything because it's the right thing to do. We do it because we are wired for reward. We are wired to seek a prize. We're wired to seek joy and satisfaction. And so Paul is doing this for a reward. And in verse 22, he says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. He's saying there is some goal, some reward, something out there for me that is so great that I'm willing to give everything for it. And he uses that word all three times by uh, become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. That's interesting. He says, I would give all away for some of something. I would give all of this away for some of something. And that doesn't sound like a very good deal unless that some is so much greater than the all that he could give. It'd be like right now, if I were to offer you, I'd say, hey, I, I, you have 10 $100 bills and I have $5,000 bills. Do the math. I mean, it's early. I know. You're going to say, of course I would take that deal. Even though you have less pieces of paper than I do, what they are worth is worth so much more than I would offer. That makes complete sense. We would jump at that opportunity. In the same way, Paul is saying, I will do all of this for the sake of the gospel. I will, I will give everything away for knowing Jesus. I will give everything away for the sake of other people knowing Jesus because this news is so good to me it's so good to me that God would give me his very own son in my place, that he would promise me new life, and he promised me eternity with him. And he's saying, I want to know that and enjoy that as much as I possibly can. And the way for me to enjoy that more than anything else is to bring other people into that joy, is to bring other people into that life-giving relationship with God that I may share with them in its blessing. I get more joy as they get joy. I love food. I talk about food all the time. If you've ever had food with me, I'm talking about other food because I love food. And I love eating food. I love talking about food. If, you, if you're new to the area and you need a, like a food record, like a restaurant recommendation, I've got you. Come find me after the service. I love food. And one of my favorite things to do when I eat is to, you know, just talk about um, and invite other people into that meal, especially if it's a big meal. I want us to experience it together. Now, it's not because you're there, that it makes the spaghetti better. It's that we get to enjoy this experience together. We get to enjoy the goodness together, and we can look back and say, man, you remember how good that peach cobbler was. You remember how good that risotto was or that jerk chicken. You remember how good that experience was. Paul saying, I've kept my focus on the gospel, on the Jesus who died for me. And everything that I have I will give it to maximize that joy, the experience of knowing Christ and others sharing in that joy with me. Everything I give away is worth it. And I believe that the reason that we often fail to do what God has told us to do or that we struggle to obey is it's not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of willpower. It's that we have forgotten why we run. We've forgotten the prize that lies ahead of us. If you're training and you're prepping for a race, I'm sure there are plenty of times along the way that you're like, man, it's too hot, it's too cold, 
my feet hurt, my hair looks funny, the wind's blowing the wrong direction. We'll find any reason to stop prepping, but if you really keep your eyes focused on the goal, you'll say, I'm going to press through this. I'm going to address this because it's worth it. I'm sure there were times when Paul was saying, you know, he's, he's away from home and people are they're talking strange and he wasn't really comfortable. And he says, man, I would just love to be at my mom's house right now. I'm sure there's times after he had suffered and was beaten and he just thought, you know, I had a pretty good gig as a Pharisee. I was crushing it. I was like top of my class. I was number one in my industry. And every time that happened, I just imagined Paul snapping back and just remembering Jesus is better. Jesus is enough. He's what truly satisfies my heart. And if you don't know what you're living for as a follower of Jesus, if you don't know the why at the end of the road, you're either going to stop running because it's too hard or you're going to run aimlessly. Verse 26 says, it says, so I I do not run aimlessly or kind of wandering about or, or I don't box as one beating the air. You imagine someone beating the air. They're giving a lot of effort and a lot of energy and a lot of effort really accomplishing nothing. If you've ever watched a boxing match, it takes more out of you to miss a punch than to land a punch. And oftentimes we are swinging with everything we possibly have in the wrong direction. And we wonder, why, why am I not growing? Why am I experiencing the joy that the Bible talks about? And eventually we just reach a point where we say, you know, I'm doing all the hard stuff of fighting sin and fighting our desires just doesn't feel worth it. But what Paul is saying is that when you give yourself to Jesus in this way, he's not saying fight harder. He's saying run in the right direction. Point your, the, the affections of your heart in the right direction. And what we see is this is an invitation to a greater joy. And verse 25 tells us that it's an imperishable joy, a joy that cannot be taken away from us. And so when we see the great value of the reward set ahead of us, all the stuff that God calls you and I to do is on the table. We're saying, Jesus, take whatever. I'll, I'll give up whatever. I'll do whatever. I'll prioritize my life, even when it's hard, because you're worth it. We see a picture of this when Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 13 of a, of a, of a man who found a great treasure in a field. And it says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Someone who recognizes the great worth of that reward says, I'm giving you everything. And what you notice about that man's story is that every other desire in his life, all that he had became subordinate to the greater desire. Became subordinate to the greater reward ahead of him. And when you consider what it looks like for you to orient your life around Jesus' way, you might be thinking, you know, I can't give that thing up. That that thing that I'm being asked to do is too hard or requires too much time. And what this might be revealing is that there's something else that has the affection of your heart. There's something else that you're loving. Whether it's money or reputation or comfort or time or security. And so the question is, is, do you know why you're running? Is there anything that you're struggling to give the Lord that may be hindering you from the greater joy that you can have in him. So we need to know why we run. But secondly, we need, to, uh, we need to commit to discipline. So we need to know what we're running after, why we're running. But then also we need to be people who commit to discipline. What happens when an athlete fixates on a goal? As we see or hear Paul tells us, he disciplines himself or herself 
to do whatever it takes to reach the prize. Verse 24, it says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now, only one there doesn't mean that like only one Christian gets to the end. This isn't the Hunger Games. Like we can, we can all get there together. Uh, but we're, we're moving towards Christ together. And what's being said here is that you need to run as one who's in it to win the race. You need to prepare yourself in such a way that, you're, that you're, everything in your life is, is tuned toward the prize of knowing Jesus. And, and this, type of, this type of training showed immense self-control. And what was being described here by Paul was a type of game called the Isthmian Games um, that was held in Corinth every two years. And, that would have, and when this letter was written, it would have been around 51 AD. They were either coming out of or going into these games. And it would have been right on their minds. It would have been an example that was right in, in, in the front of their minds. And so these people, they knew the sacrifice that was needed to qualify for these games. They, these people would train for 10 months in order to be able to get into the games, and they'd restrict their diet. You know, if, like as an athlete today, they'd be like, well, I'm, I'm not eating any carbs. I'm going to go completely, you know, completely vegan or paleo or one of those other things. And I'm not going to drink any alcohol. I'm not going to do any of these things because I, I, I want to finish the race. I want to qualify. They were laying down all these things, believing that they were worth it. They were being self-controlled. They were even laying down good things in order to pursue something greater. And there was no cost too great. LeBron James, who I believe is maybe a little controversial, is the best basketball player currently playing on the planet. And say he's the best ever. I think right now he's the best player on the planet. He spends $1.5 million per year on his body between training, health care, the way he eats, all of this sacrificing good things to achieve a greater goal. And what Paul is saying this is he's saying people like LeBron James and these racers, whether they were in a race or they were boxing and they were wrestling, whatever they were doing, they're doing, they're expending all of this energy and all of this time and all of this effort and controlling their lives in such a way that they're willing to get something perishable, a perishable wreath. The wreath that they would have been given would have been made out of pine leaves or celery something so, so perishable that it was going to wilt within a couple of weeks. And today we see people who give everything that they've got to win a Super Bowl ring or to win a Grammy or to get a promotion at work, and we'll sacrifice and we'll do all of these things in order to tune our lives or tune our minds or tune our hearts toward this one goal. And why do they fight so hard? Because of all that it represents. That you've made it, you've done it, you're the best. And what Paul says is that there is a reward Ahead for you that cannot be taken away. A reward ahead for you that you did nothing to earn. A reward ahead for you that was bought for you by the blood of Jesus, and you were simply called to enter into that race. How much more should we be willing to lay down our sins and our comforts and our preferences and our desires to follow after and obey God? How much greater is our reward? See, what you want most, what you love, makes you want to show self-control or not. If I, if I were to hand you a priceless vase, you're not going to start tossing it around like a football around the sanctuary, unless you're Tom Brady on the boat. Oh, if you saw that after the Buccaneer Super Bowl, he, he and Gronk are throwing the Lombardi Trophy across the boats. That, you know, he's won like 83 of them, so it kind of makes sense. But if I were to hand you something priceless, you wouldn't do that. You would show self-control because of an act of love and the act of seeing how worthy that thing is. 
self-control is an act of love. And what begins to happen is that you begin to order all the things that you love. Self-control is ordering your loves. An athlete might say, you know, I really love chocolate, but I love winning more. And so when Christ is your love, he's what you want the most. He's what you desire most. Everything in your life, as you control your life, begins to fall underneath Jesus' lordship. They begin to slot themselves accordingly. So some of the loves and desires of your heart become placed under Christ. They're not bad desires. They're, they're not evil desires. In fact, they're good desires, but we tend to often do with good things as we make them gods. We make them idols. We take something like rest and we do it at the expense of work, or we work at the expense of rest. We work to make a name for ourselves instead of to glorify God. Even something like pleasure. And look, I believe God wants us to be the happiest, most joyful people. I think we should throw the best parties because Christians have the greatest reason to rejoice in the world. But we don't do so in a way that's unholy. All of our desires and our loves have to be placed under Christ. Some of our desires and our loves are denied for Christ. I really want to do this, or I really want to live this way. I, I want to do this thing that's contrary to God's word, but I know that God is better than that. It's better to know him than to have that. Some of our desires are found only in Christ. A desire for intimacy or to be known, to be loved, is only found truly in Christ, and only once we've found that can we truly experience love and intimacy with other people. And sometimes it means doing really, really hard things. In verse 27, Paul says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I might should uh, I might, I, after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Paul had this fear that he was going to his life would show something different than what he preached. He said, I'm going to do the, the hard things, I'm going to push my body and push myself further than I poss thought possible in order to run after Christ. So how do we discipline ourselves to follow after God? How do you and I actually do this? You know, if you're going to run a 5K, you might you know, use the Couch to 5K app. If you're going to run a marathon, you would have a plan. You'd have a certain number of miles that you know you've got to run each day. And for Christians, we need to have a plan. We, we don't run aimlessly. We run toward a goal. And there are certain disciplines that we can set ourselves up for success with. There are rhythms that God gives us and practices that actually help calibrate our loves. They calibrate our hearts and focus our hearts on Jesus. And so I'm going to give you four of these, and so I'm going to pass a couple things out that you can look at as we, um, as we um, kind of close up here in a moment. This is actually a plan I'm going to give you to help you as you write these things down. I want you to have these. You're already beginning to think of them. But four practices that, that actually help tune our hearts toward God. Uh, the first is prayer and the Word. Uh, I wanted to, I believe those two things have to be married together. I don't think you can ever have wordless prayer or prayerless time in God's word. Um, you shouldn't read, read and pray separately. I think those two things are, are one and the same. You should you know, read the word and pray and pray, and that should lead you to the word. Um, but as we pray and we read God's word, this is an invitation to us. It's an invitation to stand before God just as you are. When you come to pray before God or you come to read his word, we're not coming to it perfect. We're not coming to it with everything buttoned up. We're not coming to it with all, all of our I's dotted and T's crossed. We're not just trying to impress God. We're coming to God and we're saying, Here's, here I am. 
And when we come to God in prayer and, and, and through his word, we're actually submitting ourselves to God in such a way that we're saying, God, we want you to shape us and we want you to change, to change us. We want you to, to meet us. I want you to meet me and I want you to increase my joy. Because who does Jesus tell to come to him? He says, come to me all who are what? Who are weary and I'll give you rest. Come to me who are anxious and I'll give you peace. So we come to God as we are. And that's what makes prayer possible. It's not our goodness, but God's grace. John Stark says prayer is not possible because we have somehow made ourselves worthy of God's attention, but because God has made himself known to us. Prayer and God's word are an invitation to life with God. But when you think about that, how, do, how does that change you? How does that shape your love? It's because when you come to God in his word and you come to him in prayer, Christ is personally present to you through the work of the Spirit. God, God is not far off waiting for you to, to, to impress him and then him draw near. As we draw near unto him, he draws near unto us. And as we do this, we read his word and we pray, we see his beauty, we see his goodness, we see the friendship that God offers. And what actually begins to happen is we begin to see all the other things we run after after are just shortcuts to God's love. He invites us to be with him. And I wonder if that might not change the way that you read the Bible and pray. Oftentimes we read the Bible for information to consume, but it's actually an invitation to communion with God himself. And God wants that. He wants to be with you. So I want to encourage you to take time to spend in God's word. Secondly is silence, solitude, and Sabbath. And so how do, how do silence and solitude and Sabbath, how do they shape us? Psalm 62 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. What happens is we sit before God and we slow down. We stop being productive is God begins to shift our hearts towards him for God alone. This is someone whose heart is learning to desire God, to sit with him, to be with him. And the idea of sitting quietly before God terrifies most of us. And the idea of sitting before God, because we're just terrified of what we're going to hear. We're, we're terrified that we're going to hear condemnation. We're terrified that we're going to hear something we've done wrong, that we're not good enough. And what God actually asks us to do as we come and we sit before him is to bring all of our fears, all of our anxieties, all of our insecurities. And I think what we find when we do that is that God doesn't crush a bruised reed. He heals us. And as he teaches us to wait, he prepares our hearts for God to work because the goal is not a quiet home. The goal is not just a quiet moment. The goal is not just, you know, living in a monastery or living as a nun. The goal is a quiet heart. And what times of silence and solitude and Sabbath teach us to do is have a quiet heart before God, to be with Him. And so I would challenge you to take, just take carve out 10 minutes a day, five minutes a day, and just sit quietly before the Lord and just meditate on a single verse. Maybe even meditate on a verse like this. And just think on these words, I'll wait for you because you saved me. I'd be interested to see how that would shape and change me. Thirdly is fasting and feasting. Fasting does something really unique that, that other disciplines don't really do. What you do when you fast is you deny yourself of lesser things to increase your hunger and dependency for greater things. And so if you're fasting from food for a period of time, um, you, the Bible tells us to do this in secret. And what is intended of that is for you to, 
to lay down that lesser desire, and when you get hungry, it turns your attention toward God, that you cry out to him in dependence. And often what happens when we find that we sin, particularly if you fall into kind of a pet sin that you fall into often, is that when you sin, it tends to be when you're tired, you're angry, you're stressed, you're hungry. It tends to be when you fall to the the place of, of need and dependency. What fasting does is teach us in those moments to turn our hearts towards God. But I'd also argue that fasting is not something done alone. Fasting is meant to lead you to feasting. John Stark again says that fasting lifts us to dependency on God, while feasting gives us a taste of his goodness. We did this last year at the end of, as part of Lent, and, and during Lent we had a, a, an intentional week of different things that we fasted from. One day was like social media, another day was like coffee, which was a really tough day for me. Uh, we asked people to maybe do one day of, of maybe just even a meal, and then the next day we actually broke the fast. We had breakfast together, and what it helps us do when we do things like that is it helps us taste and see the goodness of God, to enjoy his good gifts. This could be something as simple as just once a week saying, you know, maybe Friday night, we're gonna, I'm going to do a meal where we like go all out. And I'm going to discipline myself throughout the day to maybe not, you know, eat like a big burrito for lunch and like to not eat, you know, three eggs and bacon for breakfast. But I'm going to go slowly through the day and prepare my heart to feast on this and enjoy God's goodness. So what feasting and fasting help us do is they help us turn the question from, is this thing sin to, is this hindering me from a deeper joy? a deeper joy that could be found in God. The last one is corporate worship. If prayer and word is coming before God as we are, worship is coming before God and telling him how great he is, how lovely and good he is. It's enjoying God for who he is and for what he's done. And what we do when we come together for worship, just like we're doing right now, is we we pray and we admit our need for him. And this is vital that we do this together. It's vital that we do this together because what we do is we take all the other practices of prayer and word, silence and solitude and Sabbath, fasting and feasting, and bring them together. It's kind of like a, it's like a spiritual potluck. We bring it all together here on Sunday morning. We, we, we hear God's word and we pray. We ta- we're taking time of our schedule to Sabbath and sit and be with God. We feast on God's word. We're going to take communion in a little bit as, as a meal to talk about the sufficiency of Jesus. And so what we happen to see is that your personal spiritual disciplines or your personal spiritual rhythms actually begin to feed what happens on Sunday. It feeds corporate worship. And what happens here in corporate worship should then give you the tools that you need to go into your everyday life. These things work together. And when we come together to worship, we say this is where we meet Christ together. See, what we are looking toward is the end goal of life with Jesus. And you end up becoming what you behold. We're called to behold and fix our eyes on Jesus. And as you come before God and you fix your heart upon him, you begin to desire what he desires. You begin to begin to become like him and you begin to obey him. So you find that plan that we just we handed out to you. And I really do want to encourage you to develop a plan. This is a great plan, especially as we head into the fall. We head into um, the um, we head into uh, out of the summer where I start getting busy again with school and all these different things. We need to have a plan spiritually. So I just want to encourage you, fill this plan out. Think of this. What are one or two ways that I want to change or grow this year to look more like Jesus? What are one or two things you really want to, want to change spiritually? 
Secondly, how will I commit to godly disciplines this year? I really want you to write in specific things. Don't just say, like, I'll read the Bible every once in a while. Like, give, give something kind of specific. Um, you know, prayer and worship. Like, I'm going to go through this plan, or I'm going to read with this person. Silence and solitude and Sabbath. Writing down something like, you know, I'm going to spend 10 minutes a day alone with God. I'm going to commit to an afternoon of Sabbath once a week. Fasting and feasting. Maybe, maybe you realize that there's something you're dependent on. Maybe it's your phone. You're like, I, I need to put my phone away at night. So maybe you make a commitment. I'm a, after 5 p.m., my phone goes in a drawer. Um, maybe you need to be a person who needs to learn how to enjoy life a little bit. I'm going to feast with people once a week. And then corporate worship. Make it a commitment to just be here, to enjoy God and to encourage others. Next, what do I need to give up? What's that thing that maybe is holding me back? And then lastly, who can help me? Who is someone in your life that can help encourage you through this plan? It might be your community group. It might be a family member, a roommate, a spouse. Who can help you with this? And we see this. We see the goal that we're looking toward. We see this because we see how Jesus did it for us. It said that we see that Jesus laid all things down for our sake, for the, for the joy and the reward set ahead of him, that we can enjoy life with him and uh, with he and the Father. Let's pray.